Do y'all remember Antoine Dotson? Well, obviously we have a rapist in Lincoln Park. He's climbing in your windows. He's snatching your people up. He was the man whose TV news interview went viral back in 2010 after an intruder tried to break into his apartment and assault his sister. Pretty dark stuff. And if you're as old as I am on the internet, then you remember what happened next. He's climbing in your windows, he's snatching your people up, trying to rape them, so y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband, because they're raping everybody out here. A comedy musical quartet called the Gregory Brothers turned Antoine's interview into an auto-tune hit that became YouTube's most popular video of 2010. The song was everywhere, and despite its tragic origin story, it was one of the funniest things that happened that year. It also kind of changed my life. At this point, you might be wondering why we're starting the show off with a silly viral song from over a decade ago. It's because this video is the thing that made me truly love pop culture. I was in college at the time, and I was taking this broadcast class. And we had an assignment where we had to find an NPR story and analyze it. And I was not one of those kids who'd grown up listening to public radio in the car with my parents. They much preferred the sounds of Earth, Wind & Fire and Marvin Gaye. So I was expecting to find some dry report about bird migration in Alaska or something. But instead, I found an interview with the guy from that bedroom intruder video that I'd seen everywhere. And here's the thing. The interviewer didn't make fun of Antoine Dotson or try to get him to say something that could go viral again. Instead, she really talked to him about his life. They talked about how his sister thought the interview made him look like a fool, but how he saw it as an opportunity to get out of poverty. They talked about how race played into this. Antoine Dotson is black and the Gregory brothers who made the song are white. The interview was thoughtful and smart, and it was the kind of thing I knew I wanted to do. I later got the opportunity to work for that NPR show and a lot of other shows on other networks. And I've covered a lot of pop culture stuff throughout my career. But it wasn't until more than a decade later that I got a chance to really go deep on a weekly basis here on this podcast. Pop culture is culture. It's everything around us. Of course, it has the power to entertain us, make us laugh, dance, cry. But it also teaches us about the human condition in the world around us. It teaches us about our society, where we came from, and where we're headed. The Skim has decided to end production on this show. And while I wish we could keep bringing you new episodes, I am proud of the work we've done for almost a year. So today, on this last episode of Pop Culture, we're going to revisit some of our favorite moments and talk to a few of our favorite guests about why they love pop culture. And now I'm going to turn the mic over to a few of the super talented people who've helped make this show week after week to talk about some of their favorite moments of the past year. Hi, everyone. My name is Alicia Key, and I am the producer of Pop Cultured. One of my favorite things we do on the show is break down cultural topics that we're obsessed with, like fashion. And we've had some great moments. Like that time Bridget played a game of This or That with Christina Milian. The category Early Aught Style. Velour suits or all denim everything. All denim everything. I still do all denim everything. Velour is cute, but it always reminds me of like watching The Sopranos. 
You know, it reminds me of the scene in Love Don't Cost a Thing when you like, you give Nick Cannon a makeover. He ends up in like a velour suit. Yeah, I swear to you, I thought about that Sean John velour suit just right now when I was talking. So yes. But with photos from this season's New York Fashion Week flooding my timeline and the nonstop Instagram ads for fall sales, I've been thinking a lot about our episode on fast fashion. It's one of my favorite episodes because it makes a real connection between pop culture and our everyday lives. To help us illustrate that, we spoke with Aja Barber, who is a fashion consultant and the author of the book, Consumed, The Need for Collective Change. I've watched these TikTok hauls where people get a box the size that like an appliance, like a washing machine will come in and then they tip it out and they go through everything. So I spent $900 on Shein, so you don't have to. I learned a lot. For one, Bridget and I are both shopaholics. Think about how many items of clothing you bought this year. Everything from a t-shirt to that cute little dress you bought on a whim, or that blazer you got for work, your drawers. Tally it all up. Okay, do you have a number in your head? The average fast fashion consumer buys 68 items of clothing a year. 68 items of clothing a year. Now that's according to Rent the Runway in a Wall Street Journal article. And depending on your own closet, you might not be surprised by that number. I, for one, was shocked. So you said 68 items of clothing is the average. That is what the average fast fashion consumer in the U.S. buys. A year? A year. I don't know why that sounds low to me. Like, I'm like, is it really? (laughs) But it's also had the biggest impact on me, or well, my spending habits, because we also learned some of the real costs of buying from fast fashion brands. Do we actually need half the stuff we're buying? That question is important because Aja says the stakes are just too high for us to continue making and disposing of stuff we don't really need. Pop culture is super influential in what we see and what we buy. Not to get all the devil wears Prada on you, but when it comes to fashion, we do live our lives in it. And studying pop culture trends can teach us a lot about our habits, good and bad. And now here's Graylin with some of her favorite show moments. I'm Graylin. I lead podcasts at The Skim. Nostalgia has always been a big through line on this show, maybe more than I expected. But there's a reason for this, which is that, of course, we see everything in our lives, including TV and movies and all things pop culture, through the lens of our experience, everything we've seen and lived already in our lives. And I know that sounds very meta, but I love the way that it's played out on this show in the ways we called back to and unpacked the pop culture we grew up on. And sometimes we did that in pretty serious ways. Today, a conversation about the allegations against Joss Whedon. What happens when society creates a feminist icon out of a deeply flawed man? And what were the signs we missed all along? This episode that we did about the fallout around Joss Whedon being not such a good person is one that really stuck with me. He's the creator of some iconic shows, maybe the most iconic of those being... Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've been searching everywhere for you, Buffy. Why? To bring you your birthright. My birthright? Is that like a trust fund or something? And for a lot of people, 
me included, Buffy and Joss Whedon's other shows were special in part because they felt like they were for us as girls, as young women, in ways that a lot of other shows weren't. There's a reason these shows have a cult following among feminist millennials. And we revisited the show with Carolyn Framke, who's the chief TV critic at Variety. This girl who would otherwise get killed off in the first scene of a horror movie was the greatest warrior of her generation. She was the one who could save the day and did over and over and over again. But over the past few years, we've heard more of these allegations about Joss Whedon being allegedly an abusive boss and partner. And that's what the conversation with Framke really zeroed in on. Why did this particular Me Too-related story make us feel so bad? And what are we supposed to do with that? I feel like at this point, it's been long enough since Buffy first came out that it doesn't completely belong to the person who created it, as I think is the case for a lot of franchises that become this big. Game of Thrones doesn't completely belong to George R. R. Martin. Harry Potter doesn't completely belong to J.K. Rowling. It would be impossible for people to completely abandon it. Nor do I think they should. I think this kind of conversation where we pick up the things that we've loved and look at them really closely and consider them in new and different lights is just so important. And it's also a creative exercise in itself. And Framke also made this point, which I thought was pretty sharp. When you're a white man with a certain amount of power in Hollywood, the door is never fully closed. It's always a little ajar, <laughs> waiting for the opportunity to come back in. Okay, hey, this is Andrew Kellaway. I'm the senior audio engineer at The Skim, and I've been given a Herculean task of choosing one favorite moment from pop culture to share with you all. But to me, I'm like, it, this is cruel. It can't be done. It shouldn't be done. And frankly, I'm not going to do it. So after torturing myself, banging my head against the wall, striking golden moment after golden moment off of my list, I've come down with three, and that's as few as I can do, but I'm gonna do them really fast, okay? The first one is Tan France and Bridget bonding over the Golden Girls. If you watch shows like Golden Girls, yes, I'm clearly homosexual. Um, the women on those were some really creative stuff that wasn't really around before the 80s. I too am a Golden Girls lover. And Rose was fly. Rose could really dress. She looked like she had really nice feet. Sometimes Blanche too. Blanche too? Yeah. But they, they did my girl Dorothy wrong. They did her so dirty. And the great thing about this one is that Tam Francis' hot take is totally correct. You know, actually, who, who was down low the best dressed on Golden Girls? Sophia. Mmm. Just go back and watch. I watch it every day. Go back and watch. Me too. She has some <laughs> wicked dresses or some wicked outfits. She looks so chic. Like, if you were to put that on Gigi Hadid and send her down a runway, you'd be like, yeah, that's correct. That's, fly. You would You would wear that in a heartbeat today. She was so, so stylish. Yeah, Sophia's actually the best dressed on the show. Favorite moment number two is when Bridget was playing a game of Who Said That with Dwayne Wade and surprised him with a question about his wife. She can beat me but she cannot beat my outfit. Was that A, Rihanna, B, Solange, or C, Gabrielle Union? <laughs> I'm gonna go with Gabrielle Union on this one. 
You know what? I knew that was a trick question. <laughs> I knew it was a trick question and I fell for it. You did. You did fall for it. It's Rihanna. Okay, okay. Okay, we're going to try to see if you can redeem yourself. Okay. Know yourself, be honest with yourself, then go shopping. Was that A, Tracy Ellis Ross, B, Gabrielle Union, C, Naomi Campbell? I'm going with Naomi. It was Gabrielle Union. What'd she say? And number three, when Bridget asked the astrologer when she's going to find a man. I'm really hopeful for you about next like spring, summer, to be honest. There's some cute stuff happening, especially let me um let me try to would you like me to narrow it down for you or, or do you want to sure. kind of be more surprised? No, I want to, I want to be there waiting. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say. <laughs> and found out she has to wait like 10 months before anything good's going to happen. <laughs> I'm really loving June of next year for you. You get some nice Jupiter and Aries juice. And really all you have to do is just keep doing your thing. So I guess you might as well just delete the apps. Like, uh, don't waste too much of your time worrying about anything for the next couple months. (laughs) From time to time, some musician releases a new song or video that gets everyone talking, for good and bad reasons. And that gives us an excuse to make an episode with a lot of music. Like when J Balvin dropped a pretty offensive video for the song Parada. And it gave us the chance to explore the origins of reggaeton with music critic Isabella Regoza. And reggaeton does come from the Afro-Latin diaspora, Panama, and then Puerto Rico. A lot of that gets erased. Like other genres of music, reggaeton's origins were influenced by several factors. Jamaicans migrated to Panama to build the Panama Canal. And the descendants of the Jamaicans who stayed in Panama invented reggae in Espanol because they still took their music and they ended up making reggae with a dembo rhythm. Dembo was a style of music that was popularized in Jamaica by Shabba Ranks. In 1990, he had a really popular song called Dembo. The rhythm of that song made it to Panama in another jam by El General called Sambo. And eventually, that sound made it to Puerto Rico. That became really massive. It migrated to Puerto Rico. But also, hip-hop was being invented in New York. So the way that in Puerto Rico it was invented, it was that they took the hip-hop lyrical rap style and they fused it with the Jamaican-influenced embo reggae in Espanol, and they created something called reggaeton. Basically, instead of using live instrumentation, they used electronics. They started producing the beats, and this was in clubs. So these were like underground clubs in Puerto Rico with uh, DJ Negro and Nando Boom. You know, these were the artists that were like pioneering the sound. And then you have DJ Playero. Then you have the noise, and Evie Queen came later. And all of these people are all black, all Puerto Rican black people that invented the sound. And obviously, you know, started like taking off, taking off. And when Daddy Yankee came into the picture, he really did globalize it. 
then of course, there was the time Beyonce dropped the first single for the album that still has us in a chokehold. And we did a whole episode on the origins of house music. So by now, you've heard us talk about funk, disco, EDM, techno, and house music. But those are just some of the big ones. There are so many types of dance music. I mean, EDM and house music have their own subgenres. But you can think about all of this dance music like stops on a train. A soul train, if you will. Funk is the first stop. It all originates from that point. Some stops seem a lot like previous stops. Others feel a lot further from the first stop, like James Brown to Skrillex. But at each point, the music borrows from the stuff that came before it and adds something new. So if I had to break dance down into genres, for me, it's like you go to disco, you go to house, you go to boogie. And like I said, boogie is kind of like that easy space in the early 80s that sounds more like an R&B leaning disco. It's basically if you're doing a New York Soul Classic set, you're doing boogie music, like Michael Jackson, Baby Be Mine. Like I said, all, all the Patrice Russian songs, all of those joints, like the McFadden and the Whitehead, like all of that. So there's that, there's house. Then you get into more of like a club kind of dance, which is when you've closed down the discotheques, but now there are dance clubs that are popular. And that's when you start to lean into more of like a, an electronic leaning dance. So that's when we get into, like, with the Robiness and with the Martha Wash and with the CNC Music Factory and the Black Box and the CC Peniston and the Crystal Waters. So then we get into that because that's when it becomes, like, a more commercial culture. Then we go to techno, which is when it starts becoming more of, like, you do... Like, you can do, like, the head nod, weird sounds, whatever thingy. Naima's techno sound still makes me laugh. I learned so much about a lot of music that I've been hearing my whole life with that episode. In fact, one of my favorite things about doing this show is how much I learn in the process. We talk to some really smart and interesting people who love pop culture as much as us. So before we close up shop on this podcast, we wanted to go back to a few of those people to talk about the pop culture moments that matter to them and to find out why they think pop culture matters. My name is Sabrina Razak. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education with a specialization in women and gender studies. Sabrina has always loved sports. One of her fondest childhood memories is watching the Toronto Blue Jays win the World Series with her family back in the early 90s. Nixon butts. I remember being in my living room with my family and we were screaming. We were so happy and joyous and just couldn't believe that we won. And I think it's always that rivalry between Canada and the U.S. because really the sports mecca in North America, the billion dollar industry belongs to the United States. So when Canada wins against the U.S., it's a big deal for us. And we actually ended up winning the year after, too. It was so dramatic, too, with Joe Carter hit a home run to win. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. Left field, way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run. 
it was a masterpiece in, in terms of like that heritage moment where you were like, oh my gosh, this actually happened. It was completely magical. And it's something that you get nostalgic even talking about now. But even though Sabrina loved sports, she didn't always feel the love back. And that's what started her down the path to think more critically about the games she loves. I grew up in a small town called Kitchener, Ontario, which is about an hour west of Toronto. And I have a slender build and people didn't really assume that I could play anything. So I wasn't really picked in the playground to be on the teams. But I think as I realized that I wasn't really embraced, I also had so much joy and pleasure participating in these games and participating in sports. So I kind of was like, I really like this, but I don't really feel welcome. And why is that? So these questions started formulating in me of why people in those spaces didn't feel welcome, including myself, people who look like me. And I really wanted to find out why. And then when I was in university, I was thinking about how can I make those spaces more equitable? How could I make them more open and more welcoming and more inclusive? to other people, marginalized and vulnerable communities. So that's been my kind of ongoing quest in my studies is to examine the reasons why that is and to improve the conditions of sport. And you see that with, you know, a number of athletes who are trying to do that. Billie Jean King, who formed the Women's Tennis Association back in the 70s, right up until now, where we have a number of athletes really questioning the system and how it has been built, which is under colonial, really racist and sexist practices. And now that's starting to fray and starting to rupture. So I think we're, we're in a really exciting time. For Sabrina, sports are bigger than the game. Just look at Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick kneeling here in the United States inspired people kneeling in Europe, people kneeling in Brazil, people kneeling in Australia. So I think that really speaks to the power of one individual in a sport and how it can ignite, reignite these conversations of racial justice and see the transnationality of that movement too was clearly demonstrated with Colin. Out of that protest by Colin Kaepernick, 49ers quarterback knelt instead of standing during the national anthem at last night's game. He was not alone. America's team taking a knee before the national anthem. Soccer players from the U.S., Britain, and beyond, each taking a knee before kickoff. We're united in the decision to take the knee. Well, off the opening tip, the teams both take a knee. And now it's time to play basketball. Last night, UK played its first basketball game since players and coaches kneeled during the national anthem in Florida over the weekend. And I think it did present itself differently and it was taken up and received and embraced differently across the world. But it still started with a movement in sports. And while we might not always think of it in the same way that we think of books or art or even movies, sports are an integral part of our pop culture, of our culture. Some people will resist it or not include it within the pop culture. And I think now it's undeniable that and it is interwoven within pop culture. What I love is you now see this mesh of like sport and entertainment. You see it illustrated with people doing movies, people doing shows, like you yourself integrating in sports within pop culture. It's something that I love to see. 
We love to see our favorite team score a goal and our favorite players make a touchdown. But there's also a lot we can learn from sports beyond the innings and the plays. So Sabrina created a curriculum to do just that. It's called Teach Beyond the Boundary, and they're free resources for teachers to download and that they could implement in their classroom, lesson plans, and units. I would love people to think critically a bit more about sports, the social context around sports, and how it can really engage students to have these critical conversations. I think we romance sport and we're seduced by sport, and we want to attach the narratives that it's beautiful and it's a beautiful game, which it is. But there are a lot of things that are happening when we host large events like the Olympics. When the Women's World Cup happened, I created a resource because it was the time when the U.S. team, the women's team, was suing the Federation for unequal pay. It really ignited the conversations around gender inequities in pay. And at the World Cup, too, you saw stadiums even chanting equal pay. So it, it, it gave a, a good foundation and, and it connected to these global gender equity issues. And if you look at how much they're paid in comparison to the men's, you can translate that also even to many, many other industries too, where you see those gender inequities. So it's trying to parallel the two and using sports to do that because sports is a hook that kids can really understand. We'll have a link in our show notes to Sabrina's sports curriculum, and you can follow her at Because of Her Sports. That's B-C-U-Z of Her Sports on Twitter. We've been so lucky to have guests on the show who think about pop culture from so many different perspectives, like Sharon Kwan, who we've had on several times to talk about television. My name is Sharon Kwan, and I am a associate clinical social worker and psychotherapist. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I think you have such a unique perspective on pop culture because of what you also do. I don't think I ever asked you this or ever understood, like, how did you end up writing about pop culture, but also you're a psychotherapist and a social worker? How did you end up doing both of those things? Do you see them as connected in, in HASA? So I always love to write. That's something that I've always been doing. And I love all things about pop culture. I love entertainment. I think it all aligns because it really shapes how we see ourselves in the world when we are able to see images of ourselves and stories of ourselves. And I think it's definitely interrelated. You know, growing up, I did not really see that many examples of Asian Americans on the big screen or on the, even on the small screen. And so I think a lot of my clients can resonate with this too, this feeling of invisibility, this feeling that we're not as important, we don't matter, which really creeps into all aspects of our lives, like with our families, with our partners, with our friends, and in work situations. And so I think it's really all aligned. Like it really impacts how you see yourself in the world. Things aren't perfect, but Sharon says when it comes to seeing more representation on TV, things are better. I feel like this show is different than other shows where the Asian girl goes after a white guy. And I feel like that is a very common narrative. Um, and I really liked how never have I ever challenged that and actually confronted it. I did not mean to offend you, but hey, let's be honest, there's a lot of nerdy Indian guys, and I don't know if you know this, but your name does have the word nerd in it, so 
Oh, wow. You're the first person who's ever said that to me. Huh. Definitely no one in elementary school did. Like, it's, it's fine. I've met a million of you before. You're one of those Indian girls who only likes white guys and thinks all Indian dudes are just computer geeks or cheesy club rats who wear too much cologne. No, that's not what I'm like. And I think conversations like that is really important because it really highlights like, okay, just because there's an Asian girl on the screen, like that's not enough. It still felt like there's so much of that white gaze going on when they're only ever being matched up with white guys. And so I think new narratives like that is really powerful. And just that's like a model of what modern love, modern um, relationships can look like and really gets people thinking in, in ways that they haven't before. And as a therapist, Sharon appreciates what shows like Never Have I Ever have done for people's attitudes towards mental health. In Never Have I Ever, and in a lot of TV shows, they're seeing therapists, they're talking about these issues, especially as Gen Z. I'm pretty blown away by how smart they are and how they know all these words that I never knew growing up. Even shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend really normalizes it, really like highlights that these issues are there. We just don't talk about it enough. And I think by being able to see it on screen, being able to see people who are having access to this and showing how much it's changing their lives, like it definitely influences and motivates them to seek that help out as well. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at Shaquan, S-H-A-Y-K-W-O-N, and we'll have a link to her work in the show notes. My name is Derek Lamar Cottingham. I am a culture and entertainment journalist. Derek covers everything from television to music to movies and anything else pop culture. We've talked to him several times on the show about a lot of different stuff. And he's one of those people who you can tell just eats, breathes, and sleeps pop culture. It's the reason we called him up for this episode. And that's where Alicia started her conversation with him. Do you remember like when you really started loving pop culture and wanting to consume it? I know my pivotal moment for when I knew this was the thing for me, and it actually was a research paper that I wrote about Whitney Houston's life. It was a couple months after she had passed. It's not right, but it's okay. I was a sophomore in high school, and our class was assigned any topic we wanted to choose as long as the person or the event came from a certain time period. And it fell within the decade that Whitney was born. And so I was like, great, I get to do Whitney Houston. I can do like an entire opus about her life. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, I really enjoy this. Like the deep dive research, finding out all these people that she was related to. Like I'm like a sophomore in high school. I just knew that like this is the lady that my mom and my grandma introduced me to. And I've always loved her music. But like finding out all these facts about her life and the research and just being in the nitty gritty of it all really just was fun. It felt natural. It felt like something like, oh, this was a purpose. This was my calling. And it's something that stuck with me ever since. Before then, I consumed the media, loved it, maybe blogs here and there, but like I really hated writing. I hated reading. I hated writing, like all that stuff. Like I was a science and math kid. But that moment really shifted the trajectory for the rest of my life and like my obsession with pop culture. For Derek, representation isn't just important on screen. He says it's also important when it comes to who is critiquing the art. You said you cover everything from music to television to pop culture journalism. Why is pop culture so important to you? Growing up and I noticed how so many newsrooms never really had Black critics in their newsrooms. 
And then a lot of the times when Black art would be critiqued, it didn't get its fair shake because a lot of the times the critics were never understanding of the cultural nuances that were happening with the Black art. I want to be someone that tries to shift that with my journalistic career because that part is so important. We're documenting things and chronicling the history of art forms that are being shared with the world. And I think it's such an important like job to have to be able to analyze these things and really dissect them and understand their cultural significance and importance to people. In your opinion, why is pop culture more than just frivolous entertainment? Because we consume it every day. Pop culture is everything from lifestyle, like fashion, homes, interior design, what celebrities are doing, TV and film, music. Pop culture literally just reflects everyday life. It, like you're probably consuming or listening to a podcast or some type of music every day. You're reading a book. Books are pop culture. Like everything's pop culture. You can find Derek on Twitter at Derek, D-A-R-I-C, Cot, C-O-T-T. And he has some very exciting news. I will be joining Wrecking News on a new news desk for Black Joy as a social reporter. We'll have a link in the show notes to Derek's writing. My name is Bethany Butler. I cover pop culture for The Washington Post. I think pop culture can really reflect where we are as a society and also in some cases where we want to be, the kind of society and culture we want to have. There are times where I learn different themes and things that might be important to us as a society from pop culture. One good example is with Black Lives Matter and this renewed movement for racial justice. I think you started seeing it show up in a lot of shows. Some were more like genuine than others, but I think that there was just this moment where it was such a part of our culture that it couldn't be ignored on TV. Give us the cop's name. Help us get justice. You don't want justice. You want anger. You want outrage. You want retribution. Couldn't be ignored in music. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They're killing us for no reason. When you know we've been hurt, been down before. When our pride was low, looking at the world like where do we go? And we hate poor poor. When they kill us dead in the street for sure. And I think there are different periods throughout certainly the last few decades where TV has really reflected sort of the things that we care about, the things that we are unpacking as a society and trying to figure out. We talk about representation on this show a lot and how seeing people who look like you and who deal with the same things as you can be affirming. Bethany remembers a really early time when she felt seen. I think of Sister, Sister and the episode where I believe it's Tia. Tia gives herself a perm. (laughs) This is after going to the salon with Tamara and Tamara gets like this sleek blowout and Tia's like, it's okay, I don't need it. 
And then she goes to school and everyone judges her because she doesn't have this sleep blowout that her sister has. And then she tries to give herself a perm and it ends up like smoking, like her hair almost catches fire and she runs downstairs. Mom, what am I going to do? It's terrible. No, no, it looks real hot. <laughs> I'm going to my room. No, 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 honey, no, honey. No, no it, it looks fine. Now, let me help you fix it up a little bit. What is that smell? Tamara, have you seen your sister's new hairstyle? It's really nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That image is like emblazoned in my mind because it was definitely the first time I'd ever seen, I think, even like a relaxer, like referenced any kind of way on TV. And there's a more recent example that Bethany loves. I'm sure I've talked about this before. I'm multiracial. I'm part Mexican. And for me, like I have learned Spanish. A lot of the Spanish that I know I have learned from music and television. And one of the shows that I really liked was Jane the Virgin. And they had a really interesting approach to incorporating Spanish into the show where the grandmother Jane's grandmother would only speak in Spanish and everybody would respond to her in English with enough context for anybody to figure out what Abuela was saying. Me ha roto el corazón. Oh, abuela, it is not what you think. Yo creo que tú me has estado mintiendo por mucho tiempo. No, I didn't. I, I got accidentally... Oh, I don't even know how to say this in Spanish. Tuviste relaciones sexuales. No, no, I didn't. The doctor made a mistake. And I, I think that can be meaningful if you come from a family that only speaks Spanish. You have a relative in your family that only speaks Spanish, and that's how you communicate with them. It's really important and special, I think, to see that reflected on television. Pop culture is something that helps us see ourselves but it also connects us with the people around us. And it can be even more special when that connection is with our loved ones. I have loved pop culture, like, as long as I can remember. I've been a reporter basically since high school, and even then I was writing about pop culture because it just always helped me understand my own place in the world. My dad died a few years ago, and pop culture was really something that he and I shared. He introduced me to Spike Lee. Hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. We didn't come over on the, the Nita, the Pinta, and the, and, the, and the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Landed right on top of us. Wake up! Wake up! That was his favorite director. And a lot of the conversations we had about the world and about this country were prompted by watching a Spike Lee movie. We would have these conversations about what it meant. What was Spike Lee trying to say and do the right thing? What was he trying to say in Bamboozled? I actually wrote my college essays on Bamboozled, which is a great, really underrated movie about stereotypes on television in particular. The Huxtables, Cosby, a genius, revolutionary, but we can't go down that road again. The network does not want to see Negroes on television unless they are buffoons. It's a satire, and it's really biting and insightful. And that movie has stayed with me from the moment I saw it. 
And so, you know, pop culture is also how we connect to each other or it can be a way for us to connect to each other. It's not just that you remember the movie you saw, but you remember who was with you when you saw the movie. You remember the conversation that you had afterward. And maybe you remember a TV episode or a movie that changed your life in some way or shifted your perspective. So that's so powerful. And I, that's why I love pop culture. Well said, Bethany. It's also why I love pop culture. We're going to miss bringing you this show every week. But while we're wrapping up on pop cultured, it's not really goodbye. I'm going to be coming at you regularly on the Skim social feeds with entertainment news, hot takes, reviews, a lot of the good stuff we brought you here on the show. So if you're not already, go over to the Instagram and TikTok right now and follow us at The Skims. We've also got a very cool event series in the works where you'll catch us in conversations with authors talking about their books. Keep an eye on theskim.com for those updates. And you might catch me and Alicia from time to time on The Skims weekly news podcast, Skim This. So make sure you're following the show. Until then, thanks for listening and supporting us for the past year. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I've had the pleasure to work with a team who has outdone themselves week after week. It's honestly the biggest pleasure of this job. They're a truly kind, patient, and fun group of people to work with. And they're also really talented. This is a small team, and the caliber of episodes we've been able to pump out week after week is nothing short of amazing. Alicia Key is our show's producer. Thank you to Blake Blue Merwin for your production help. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. So all of those wonderful episodes with amazing music and sound and scoring, that's Andrew. And thank you to Ellie McAfee-Hahn for your additional engineering help. Our fearless leader and director of audio for The Skim is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to all the wonderful people we've talked to on this show. And thanks to Sabrina Razak, who, by the way, was our first ever guest on Pop Culture. She talked to me for our pilot episode. Thanks also to Sharon Kwan, Derek Cottingham, and Bethany Butler. We'll have links to their Twitter handles and some of their work in the show notes. While we won't be back next week with a new episode, this podcast feed isn't going anywhere. So you can go back and listen, and as always, share with a friend.